Let's uh, pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the power of the resurrection. For the life that came through Jesus and his resurrection. You are the almighty God. And we worship you. We honor you. We lift you high. We pray be glorified, Lord. Let your word become life to us. To make us more like Jesus. We pray. Amen. I want to run through the crucifixion and just basically the whole Easter weekend. What it was like that first Easter. I want us to experience it, to live it a bit, to understand what Jesus did and the result of what he did. It all starts one late night in a garden. It all begins with a kiss. But there's no love, there's no tenderness in that kiss. There's betrayal. There's frustration, there's anger. As Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek to reveal who they were there to betray. Jesus brings with him a crowd of soldiers from the high priest, armed to carry Jesus away. Jesus is there with his disciples, with his followers. Followers of Jesus lash out with a sword and uh, one of the servants of the high priest loses his ear. And yet at this point of the start of Jesus' betrayal, after his sweated drops of blood, knowing what was coming, Jesus reaches out calmly and heals the servants here. Jesus' followers flee for fear of being arrested themselves. And Jesus is grabbed by the soldiers and they drag him off to face his trial. Jesus is thrown before a mock court and is accused throughout the night. But none of the charges have consistency. The bribe witnesses can't get their story straight in the face of one so great yet so humble. Finally, an accusation is found from his own lips that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. It's enough for them to sentence him to death. The temple soldiers drag him out, punching and beating him. One of many beatings that Jesus will endure throughout that night. They drag Jesus off to face Pilate. They can't crucify him themselves. They need Pilate's permission. But Pilate can find no wrong. The crowd grows more and more restless. Pilate tries to appease them. He questions Jesus and declares he can still find no wrong. To try and avoid a ride, Jesus is sent off to Herod. Herod's been hoping to see Jesus for a while. He wants to see Jesus perform some miracles. He wants to, to see it like a party trick, a bit of entertainment. But Jesus stands silent before him. 
Finally, Herod is bored with Jesus' silence and has his soldiers beat Jesus again before sending him back to face Pilate. Pilate is at a loss. His wife warns him about a dream that she had. Says, have nothing to do with this man. But he has a problem. Because the crowd is growing restless. A riot is ensuing around him. There's been a history of riots and Pilate is fearful of losing his position, of losing, losing his power. He offers up Barabbas, a murderer. Says, I'll crucify him. Just let Jesus go. But the crowd grows more and more noisy. The crowd wants the blood of Jesus. Finally, out of hopelessness, Pilate consents to Jesus being crucified, the most inhumane death ever recorded throughout history. But Jesus is not dragged straight off to the cross. He's dragged before a new set of soldiers, Roman soldiers who are tired of being in a foreign land, tired of the unrest, tired of the people and their strange ways. They just want to go home. They're presented by one who is called the king of the Jews, the king of the people they despise, and they see their chance for revenge. They beat Jesus. Then they whip him with a cat of nine tails, a whip made of leather with bits of bone and pottery tied into it. The whip is wrapped around Jesus' body and then pulled so that his flesh, the muscles, the sinews are pulled out until there's nothing but just blood everywhere. And when they finish whipping him, it says beyond recognition. Because the flowers of the cat of nine tails would go up and pull his face and pull at all the parts of his body. When they'd finished whipping him, put a robe upon his back, covering over and touching into all the, the nerves upon his body. They took a crown of Judean thorns, hard as nails, placed on his head, then beat it down with sticks until it dug into his skull. They punched him and beat, it, beat him and tormented him. Finally, they grabbed the crossbar of the cross, a large piece of wood full of splinters. It wasn't smooth. It was just roughly cut. And they placed it upon his shoulders and his back, the same shoulders and back, which has just been whipped until there's bone coming through. And they make him drag this as it bumps over every rock Splinters digging into his body. Finally, Jesus can walk no more and he collapses under the weights of the beatings, the whippings, of the wood that he carries. Simon of Cyrene is called to help Jesus as they drag him towards Calvary. When they get to the hill where he'll be crucified, the blood has started to dry around the robe and they pull that robe off, exposing all the wounds again. They drop his torn and bruised and battered body down upon the wood, the splinters digging again into his body. And then they take spikes as large as railway spikes and they hammer them through his hands and his feet as they nail him to the cross. The cross is then picked up and dropped unceremoniously into its holding place, pulling on the hands and his feet where the nails are guru. The only way you can breathe upon a cross is by pulling on those nails with your hands and your feet. The way you die upon a cross is by suffocation. 
Jesus is crucified between two criminals. In the midst of this, the crowd is taunting. One of the criminals has a go at him. The other criminal defends him. And in his last hour, calls out to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And after being beaten and whipped and beaten and then crucified at the cross, Jesus pulls up on those nails in his hands. He pushes up on the nails through his feet and grants forgiveness and mercy to the criminal next to him. He does that same tormented act to breathe again and cry out for forgiveness for those who crucified him. Finally, with all the sin of the world on his shoulders, with his heavenly Father unable to look down upon him, Jesus draws his last breath and dies. Following Jesus' death, his body is laid in a borrowed tomb. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, are devastated. They thought this guy was their Messiah. He was their Redeemer. They head into the Sabbath, the Saturday, and they're lost. Their hope is gone. Everything they heard Jesus say melts away because he's dead. And while they head into great despair, Jesus is bringing about victory. Because he's down in hell, preaching to the demons, telling them that they got it wrong telling them that they thought they'd won. You see, Satan, Satan's sitting there and he's looking at Jesus on the cross and he's looking at them burying in the tomb and Satan's going, it's time for my picnic. I've been working for thousands of years to get to this point and finally I've won. And he heads down with all the other demons and, and they're sitting around having a party. But in that dark, dark place, there's a light shining through. In that dark, dark place, suddenly the gates of hell shake. And fall off their hinges. And all of hell is rattled as Jesus steps on in. And it says in First Peter that Jesus preaches to the demons in hell. That he spends the whole day preaching to them. And I think he's explaining to them what the cross was all about. Because though they could whip him, though they could beat him, though they could crucify him on the cross... It was only because he let them. Because he knows the next part of the story. That he's going to come back to life. That he's down in hell. Not because he's defeated, but because he's taking back victory. And for that whole day, the demons are in torment. Because they realize they've just played into God's hands. Because on Sunday morning, the women who follow Jesus head on down to the tomb early. And when they get there, the stone is gone from the front. It's rolled away. And they enter into the tomb where they thought they were going to prepare Jesus' body forever to be in the tomb. And he's not there. Death could not hold him. All of hell and its demons could not hold him because he's risen. And the angel sitting on the stone declares, he is risen. The women go back and, and tell the disciples. And the disciples don't know what to make of it. Is it the stress? Are they just lost the plot? Or could it be true? Peter and John run down, have a look in the tomb, and he's not there. And the angel declares, 
He is risen. He is risen. Two guys are walking. They leave that group. I mean, this is what gets me, is they come back and they say to all the others, he is risen. And these two guys go, now's a good time to go for a walk to Emmaus. They didn't know what else to do. The, the followers of Jesus were totally lost. They did not know what to do with themselves. So these two guys are walking along and Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you so down? And they're going, don't you know what happened over the last three days? And they're so lost. You know, these guys are, a few days ago are calling Jesus the Messiah, but now they call him a prophet, a good man. And they say, we hoped he'd be the Messiah. And Jesus starts to explain them from, from Moses all the way through. He explains to them, this is Jesus. This is what he did. This is why he died. He's coming back to life. And finally they get to where they're going and they say, come in, have a meal. And they sit down and Jesus breaks the bread and their eyes are open and they see him. And even though it's night, and even though it's dangerous to be outside, they run all the way back to Jerusalem. Because they've seen Jesus, they have no fear. They've seen Jesus, He is alive. And when they get back there with all the followers of Jesus in that room, suddenly Jesus appears. He walks through the wall and they're freaked out. But He's not a ghost. He's come back to life. He says, let me prove it. Give me some fish. And they give him the fish, and he eats the fish, and there is astounded. Could it really be? And yet it is in front of us. Could it really be? And he declares to them, I'm alive. I win. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. So go and spread it all around. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared there and then, Freedom is available to everybody. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared that we have an open way to relationship with God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared freedom and deliverance from all guilt and shame. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared freedom from all sickness. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared victory to anybody that would believe in him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he showed us the way to eternal life was through him. When we believe on him, he sets us free. You see, they, Satan thought he'd bound him upon the cross. He thought he'd bound him into death. But Jesus said, no, 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 freedom is my path. I take on all that binding. I take on all those restrictions. I take on that legalism. I take on that sin and that sickness and that guilt and that shame. And I take it upon me and I'm going to bury it so deep that it'll never be found again. And then I'm coming back from where I buried it to declare that you have freedom in Jesus Christ. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So we don't have to carry guilt. He says, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when John wrote that, he was writing to the church. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 1, to the church, there is therefore now no condemnation. 
through those who are in Christ Jesus. So you are actually free in Jesus. When you take him as your Lord and Savior, you are free. We live in a fallen world. We live where there's temptation. We live where we'll make mistakes. We live in a world that says you can't be free. You have to be bound up. You have to be subservient to someone or something. Whatever you have is not enough. But Jesus said, no, no, no. I got whipped. I got beaten. I got tortured. And finally, I got crucified. So I could take all of the condemnation, all of the legalism, all of the guilt, all of the shame, and bury it so deep in hell that it'll never be found. My suspicion is hell is fueled by all the guilt and the shame and the sin. It's what's burning down there. It's why it makes such a stink. But it's down there in hell. Everything that you have ever done wrong and asked God to forgive you of no longer exists in your life or in God's life. Everything. Let that sink in. Everything you have ever done wrong Any mistake you have ever made, whether it was intentional or not, every time you stepped outside of the will of God, if you have asked Him to confess, to forgive you, if you have confessed it to Him and asked Him to forgive you, it no longer exists in your life or in God's life. And it never, ever will. As we talked about in Bible college the other week, when you get to heaven, The whole life is going to be there. But you know what? People think when they get to heaven, all their sins are going to be shown and they're going to be so embarrassed in front of everybody else. But that cannot happen because it says that when He forgives you of your sin, He is faithful and just and it's gone. It says He takes your sin and He buries it so deep it can never be found, not even on the day of judgment. So what happens on the day of judgment when you stand before God and your life is there? And those times where you've messed up, what happens then? God cannot bring it back up because He doesn't work in time and space. If He has said it doesn't exist now, it doesn't exist for all eternity. So what happens on that part of the movie? Jesus appears. Because when God looks at you, He looks through Jesus. He looks through those hands that have been pierced. He looks through those feet. He looks through the side where the spear went in and the blood and the water flowed. He looks upon the face that held the crown of thorns with the blood running down the front. He looks at you through Jesus and all he sees is the blood of Jesus that washes away all sin. So your sin, when you have confessed it, is no longer a part of your life. In fact, if you said to God right now, do you remember when I did that? He would say to you now and for all eternity, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, it was April the 2nd, 1993. God says, let me look it up in the book. No, I just got a picture of Jesus. Page is a bit red, bloodstains. God made you to be free. If you were actually free, what would you do? If you did not think, who am I to? I thought, I am the son or the daughter of God. I have the right to. God 
does not make things simple. You know, they thought, they thought a cell was simple and still started dividing the things. They used to talk about, I remember science used to talk about these simple cells when I was in, in school. You know, the most simple being is a cell. Then they started dividing cells and they found all these atoms inside the cell and found it was actually far from simple. It was actually ultra complex. And now they're trying to divide the atom. And when they do that, you know what they found? Amazing power. If they bounce them off each other, it makes these massive explosions. And now they're going down even further. And they're so worried about going the next stage that when they make this machine that actually goes through and tries to recreate that thing, they're worried it's going to create a massive black hole and suck us all into it. Because they've discovered, science has discovered that things are not simple. They are absolutely awesome and powerful. And this, the absolute core of your physical being, is absolutely awesome and powerful. This is what your physical being is made of. And when you add to that, that God resides in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, but you are absolutely awesome. You're free to be awesome. God made you for awesome works. Satan tried to bind you through sin to say you cannot be who God made you to be. But Jesus said, I went through a beating and a flogging and a crucifixion to declare that it was for freedom. I have set you free. So it's time to start being free. And if someone tells you that you're a rotten sinner and that thing is still a part of your life, I'm telling you right now, it's not the church that's telling you that. It's not God that's telling you that. It's Satan. He's described as a liar. There is no truth in him, the Bible says. So if he says it, then the opposite must be true. Which means that you are without sin. You are without shame. That nothing can separate you from God. That you have the right as a righteous son or a righteous daughter of the Almighty God to walk up to the throne of grace and petition God to do the impossible. I was reading about a guy a couple of weeks ago. He says, I was at, he was a new Christian. He said, and I was says, at the gates of heaven and I was crying out to God. And God said, what are you doing? And he said, God, I'm crying out for you to move in this area. And he said, what do you mean you're crying out? He says, I'm sitting at the gates of heaven, God, and I'm crying out to you. And he says, what are you doing at the gates? Because I have given you permission to walk to my throne, to sit at my feet and simply ask. Let's understand this Easter, who we are in Christ. We are not lowly worms. Have you ever seen lowly worm? He's a pretty cool creature, which is scary as tails. <laughs> He's got a good self-esteem. <laughs> but you're not a worm. You are made in the image of God. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, recreated into the image of God. There is nothing more that can ever be done to make you godlike except to choose to live your life as God has given you to live. Heaven has given you everything you need to be awesome, to be magnificent, to walk in victory. Of course, life is going to throw stuff at you. The devil is going to throw things at you. He's going to try and slow you down. He's going to try and stop you. But the bottom line is, 
that he cannot. No matter what he throws at you, Jesus has set you free. No matter what comes your way to bind you and push you down and have a go at you, Jesus has set you free. No matter what lies people say, no matter what legalism they throw your way, Jesus has set you free. And it's time to stand up and say, I live for Jesus and Jesus lives through me and I am awesome. I am beautiful. I am made in his image and nothing can stand in my way. There may be hills that slow me down, but what fun when you're right down the other side. There may be valleys and darkness, but you know what God says about those? When you're in the middle of the valley, put a table up and have a meal. Don't be afraid, because Jesus is with you, the good shepherd. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Jeremiah 28 says, they'll come at you one way and they'll flee seven while you're sitting there eating your meal. Nothing can stop you when you grab a hold of the freedom that Christ has for you. Jesus has already suffered, so you don't have to suffer. He was already whipped and beaten and crucified, so you wouldn't have to be whipped, beaten and crucified. He's taken all sickness upon him, so you wouldn't have to walk in sickness. He has taken the guilt and the shame and the sin upon him, so you wouldn't have to have any of it. So what's the point in doing Jesus' job for him? Because he's actually already done it. He's already done it. And you are free. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. That you have set us free. That you have made us to be magnificent. To reflect your glory and your majesty. You have made us to be overcomers. That we are the head, not the tail. We are above and not beneath. Lord, you said we're winners and not losers. We are successes and not failures. You said we have the mind of Christ, that we can discern all things. You said that we are healed by the wounds that Jesus bore. You said that we will prosper at all that we put our hands to. So Father, I pray over every single person here that they will get a revelation of who they are in Christ. That when Satan comes to try and distract and to steal and to kill and to destroy, that we will know who we are in Christ. That we'll be able to stand up and declare, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. And I am free in Christ. Because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to walk according to your purposes. Help us when we fall to get straight back up and to know your grace and forgiveness that you'll be glorified through our lives. Lord, we bless you and we honor you this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.